Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. At least that's how I was before I started making podcasts for the Restart Project. The Restart Project are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. I grew up before the internet. Um, I'm, I am that old. So I saw the internet blossoming from this obscure research thing with a few hundred computers on it to the now literally billions of things connected to it. It is quite shocking when you consider how pervasive it is. You know, how many people panic when they can't get onto the internet? Literally, you know, their lives fall apart. A few years ago, I thought I'd lost my phone and I spent hours in the dark retracing my steps, searching everywhere desperately to find it. I finally gave up and decided to go home. And when I got to the train station, I just felt completely distraught. I wasn't connected to the internet and wouldn't be connected to the internet on the way home and would spend a lot of time until I got a new phone with no access to the internet. Luckily for me, at that moment, I put my hand into my pocket and felt my phone. As happy as I was to be reunited with my digital brain, I did stop and wonder about my reliance on the internet and was pretty shocked, in a way, that I couldn't imagine life without it. And of course, it isn't just losing our technology that might make us disconnected from the internet. Imagine a scenario where the internet collapses and we're all suddenly bereft and unable to access this digital space that we spend so much of our lives in. In today's episode, I talk to two Restart volunteers who know much more about the internet than I do about what the internet really is in a physical, material sense. My name is Dave Lukes. I'm a volunteer with the Restart Project. In my other existences, I'm a manager with an IT company. I manage an IT infrastructure team. I do other things in between. I'm a cyclist, a volunteer with my local cycling campaign group, a fanatical DIY enthusiast. And how would you describe the internet? Well, okay, let's be boring and technical and describe it as a large, non-centralised network of computers spanning the world. That doesn't really answer the question, which is how does one perceive the internet as a user of it, as a consumer? if you like and the internet is a web of knowledge let's put it that way when you say the internet people really mean the world wide web don't they in that sense it's an interconnected web of knowledge or let's say information to be pedantic is not all knowledge some of it is very unknowing some of it is well let's call it fake news whatever garbage there's also a lot of amazing and interesting stuff out there though from its early beginnings in nuclear research up to all the other ridiculous stuff that you can find on the web, cat pictures, silly videos of people falling over, everything in between. And of course, from my point of view as a restarter, people use it as a knowledge base for repair information, where to buy 
obscure components they need to fix things, all sorts of other wonderful stuff out there. We tend to think of the internet as something immaterial and disembodied, as something that just simply is. But the reality is quite different. Greenpeace's Gary Cook said that the internet is the single biggest thing that humanity will ever build. So what does the internet actually look like? The actual internet is very boring, actually, if you see it. There's a lot of boxes with some blinking lights on it and wires that connect them together. It really is that boring. You saw a data center. Some companies do color their computers pretty colors to make them more interesting, but basically it's a box of metal with a load of electronics in it. It's no more interesting on that level than, say, your phone. Your phone is a computer. Your phone is, in principle, part of the World Wide Web because you connect to it and you can browse web pages on your phone. So your phone is a very small part of the World Wide Web, as is your laptop, your desktop computer, or whatever and they're all in some ways very mundane it's just a thing which takes electrons from somewhere and reshuffles them around into a different form and does something with them and ultimately displays the net result of that on a screen we wanted to explore what dave meant when he said these boxes with blinking lights and wires so we asked someone who spends a lot of time literally inside the internet or more precisely inside the data centres that our internet comes from. I'm Sophia Flucker. I'm a restart host. I work for a company called Operational Intelligence. So I'm a consultant specialising in data centres. A data centre is the physical manifestation of the internet and a lot of IT services, in fact. So they do vary in size, but when you think about the, the hyperscale ones, so your Googles, your Facebook, etc., they're often a very large warehouse filled with racks of servers. So there'll be thousands of thousands of servers, switches, storage, etc., inside. So it's, it's a purpose-built shed, often in the middle of nowhere, where all of this data is coming in and out. So I guess when you're at a party and you're talking about this sort of stuff, you, like, blow people's minds. It's quite divisive. So some people <laughs> know what a data centre is, maybe if they work in IT, and they might be quite interested in it. Some people just have no concept at all, so that, that can be quite a difficult discussion because people think, well, it's in the cloud. It's like, well, what, what is the cloud? And, and really, it's it's in our everyday lives in, in ways that you don't even think about. You know, every time you take cash from an ATM, it's not, it's not just the obvious IT services, if you like. It's, it's all of our engagement in, in businesses, really. These days, we tend to be more environmentally aware than we were a decade ago. When we drive to work, instead of getting on the bus, we feel bad about it. We think more about where our food comes from and what was used to grow it. But we often don't think in these terms when it comes to how we use the internet. We don't think that using our phone to watch a YouTube video might use more power than reading an article. But it's true, and it has nothing to do with battery life. Gigabytes and megabytes are quantities of actual stuff which correspond to real energy and to physical equipment. Because it's not visible to you, you don't pay for it. So, you know, you might pay to have a phone, you might pay a monthly charge, but you're not generally paying directly for how much data you're using. You'll have a package and it will be included within that. If you don't pay the bill, then what's your motivation to act on it? It becomes something that you take for granted and, and everyone else is doing it. So it's it's someone else's problem. It's somewhere far away. It's in the cloud. I think it's, it's kind of to do with that. I think we have to appreciate that every time we are using IT services like this, there is a power requirement for it. If you imagine all the number of times that people have clicked on a particular video on YouTube, it adds up to sort of megawatts and gigawatts of power usage. But because you're not paying for it directly, a, lo a lot of these things are free. You're not seeing the price of that. But globally, we are using a lot of power for the internet. 
A way to conceptualise data centres is to think about them as a freshwater reservoir. When you turn on the tap, you know that your tap is connected to a complex system with very physical components like pipes, pumps and valves. When you stream a video, a similar thing is happening, although admittedly, it's a lot more difficult to trace the path that it takes. It's quite complex. It's something that we really take for granted. You know, everyone has a smartphone and everyone accesses apps and services through their phone. So you don't really think about what happens after you've you've tapped your device. So between your device and the server at the other end, which is doing the computation or running the application, there's a whole chain of other buildings and devices. There's switches which are, are passing that data through. Inside the facility, I guess we take for granted what the IT is doing, but they're taking a lot of power as well. So these servers are very highly densely packed often. So there's all of this electrical infrastructure behind that. There's backup generators if you have a mains failure. There's batteries to tide you over in the break between the mains failure and the generators coming on. There's lots of cooling systems as well. Uh, so all this is, is there and it's available and it's, it's keeping things going. But I think mostly we don't really give it a second thought. It's all happening in the background. In order for it to get to you, it's going down the fibre optic cables, it's going through all of these different switch sites. It could be anywhere, it depends. A lot of the providers have multiple sites. As I understand it, Google, for example, they'll be running the search in three different facilities in global locations. The one which sends the results back to you is just the one which does it fastest. So it, it could be anywhere. It's, it's very virtual, this idea of the cloud, and it's quite hard to actually trace each kind of transaction and where exactly it's going. The video that you're watching doesn't just come from nowhere. It is sent to you from a metal box which uses electricity. And that electricity also has to come from somewhere. It's a bit like the motor car, you know, by analogy. You know, we are so dependent on these things in spite of their massive environmental damage. You can be picky and say, well, in theory, the internet could be a zero carbon thing. And some of the larger IT companies, mentioning no names, are trying very hard to use solar energy and so on and so forth. And I think some of them now claim to actually have some of their data centres being zero carbon. So there are attempts to make it less environmentally damaging. But if you look at the amount of power that a typical data centre consumes, it's in the millions of watts. They are huge consumers of energy. Some of the problems you don't think of until you see these places, how much heat they generate. If you have a data centre in this country, generally the biggest cost is cooling, not the actual electricity consumed by the computers. Typical computer server consumes a couple of hundred watts of electricity. Most of that gets turned into raw heat, which then has to be moved out to keep the computer cool, to keep it from melting down. So there's this massive environmental cost in terms of heating up the environment and in terms of using even more energy to then cool it down again. There is a link between performance and temperature. So there's kind of all these home gamers who do like the overclocking and they're trying to reduce the temperature so that they can get more performance out. It's kind of going the other way in data centers, actually, because traditionally it was all about reliability and no one really cared about energy efficiency. I think partly because the person who pays the bill is not probably the person who is deploying the IT service. There's a big disconnect between the people who run the building and the people who actually run the IT side of things. That's, that's one issue. But people started to notice that actually we're spending a lot of money on electricity. The price of electricity is increasing as well. And so they started to look at, well, do we really need to cool things all that much? Does it need to be very cold so you have to put your coat on to go inside? Do computers really need that? Basically, there's been a lot of work done in this area and they don't need to be very cold. There's an internationally accepted 
temperature range, which is up to 27 degrees normally. It can go up to 32 degrees, 35 degrees at times, even broader ranges, which means that if we're not needing to cool the computers so much, we can actually remove a lot of the cooling requirements and use a lot less energy in doing that. So that's something that I, I spend a lot of time doing, trying to understand what needs to happen in order that we can remove cooling equipment and rely on the ambient temperature, even in quite warm places, to do the cooling. The sound that you can hear now is the sound of the enormous fans that are sometimes used to cool data centres. My specialism is cooling. We're trying to make sure people are operating at higher temperatures, making full use of that range and, and understanding what it means and what, what the potential risk is with that. So in order to do that, we need to optimise how we're distributing the air inside the facility. So making sure that the cold air gets to where it needs to. So there's a lot of work around containing hot and cold airstreams. We're also looking at how we can avoid using any kind of refrigeration. So rather than using a chiller, which has a compressor, which uses a lot of energy, which produces cold water, which we pass through a heat exchanger to cool the air, we're looking at, well, now we're at warmer temperatures, is there a way that we can cool the air inside without using something so energy intensive? And sometimes that's using outdoor air, maybe through an air-air heat exchanger. Uh, making use of evaporative cooling, which is where we're using water to bring down the air temperature. So trying to avoid energy-hungry refrigeration machines where we can. And there's real solutions out there which are operating, and it's a real trend that people are starting to understand what a difference that makes. There are several ways that we can motivate companies to make their data centres more efficient. One of those ways is through public pressure. Greenpeace recently released a report called Clicking Clean, which helped to bring some of this information about energy efficiency into the public eye. So I think they've been doing the Clicking Green report for the last three years or, or more. It's very much the idea that they're kind of naming and shaming the big brands and trying to encourage them into being more conscious of their environmental impact. And certainly it gets a lot of publicity. And I think some of the brands are, are very aware of what their consumers think. So there have been trends in the right direction. An argument I've kind of heard against this approach is often it's for large data centre operators who are actually more environmentally aware and are, are doing more of a good practice than the smaller people who are maybe under the radar. So someone said, well, they're kind of going after the wrong people. But I think if it has an influence, if it raises awareness, you know, they're big brands which, which people know if, it, if it's thought-provoking, then th there is a lot more that they can do. So I, I think it's a positive thing. The 2017 Clicking Clean report estimated that the IT sector still consumes approximately 7% of global electricity. The Greenpeace report comes up with scorecards that it uses to grade various companies and identify which companies are taking the lead. Thankfully, this pressure has helped to influence some of the biggest architects of the internet and progress has been made by Google, Apple and Facebook. But it's important that this pressure is sustained and that the smaller companies also make these kind of changes. Within our capitalist society, a good way of changing people's minds is to show that greener is cheaper. At the Restart Project, we tend to think that this kind of motivation isn't going to be enough. What we need is a change in attitude that goes deeper than the bottom line. But pragmatically speaking, this kind of approach does 
help? Let's be pragmatic. It's a question of cost. The more energy you use, the more money it takes. So being green is also being mean. It's good to be green because you're saving money. I think, sadly, it's often price. Maybe the wrong reasons, but it's, it's a good motivation. There's a lot of impact on brand as well. So companies like Facebook, for example, they've got a lot of younger users and they are interested in are you doing what you can be doing for the environment. Sometimes renewable energy is cheaper as well. So maybe it's a strategic decision that, well, we want to do it for brand, but where can we do it at the right price as well? Sometimes you can design sustainable, simple reliable solutions which kind of is giving you everything that you want i would say cost is still a big motivator it has to be reliable but people are starting to look at the bigger picture and, and what their customers want as well so data centers are becoming more energy efficient due to public pressure and campaigns led by greenpeace and other ngos companies like apple facebook and microsoft are using more clean energy to run their data centers than they used to but that's just half the battle won. A large part of the environmental impact of data centers is the amount of power required to make the stuff in the first place. When people talk about the environmental impact and green and sustainable data centers, they're normally just talking about energy efficiency. It's quite common now, but that isn't the only environmental impact. So often people talk about PUE, power usage effectiveness. This is a, a metric which is widely used in the, the industry. And it's basically the ratio of total power to the power going to IT. So it tells you if I need one kilowatt for computing i need an extra one kilowatt for cooling and i've got some power distribution losses as well so really your theoretical best pue is one you want all of the power going to your data center to go to your it you want to minimize the energy you're using for other things so that's that's one aspect but it doesn't tell you how efficient your it is and it doesn't tell you how much energy you're using in total. So it's, it's been quite useful to drive improvements on the power and cooling side, but it's not the whole picture. I managed to hang on to my mobile phones for a lot longer than most people. But even I feel guilty because my mobile phone is less than five years old. Why shouldn't I have the same mobile phone I had 10 years ago? And the same thing with computers. To some extent, also, of course, the massive advances in software make the hardware redundant. You know, we now need bigger, more powerful computers just to run the basic software like word processing and so on, which is ridiculous. If you look back, there is more computer power in my pocket now than there was in the whole world when I was born. The first computer that I administered had 64 kilobytes of RAM in it. You can't even buy that amount of memory now. You can now buy computers with 64 gigabytes, a million times larger and several hundred times smaller. That's the scary thing. The computers that I used to use were the size of a car. The computer that's a million times more memory capacity is one hundredth of the size. It's a little thing that fits in a rack. That is starting to slow down. And we're starting to reach the limits there. Sooner or later, we're not going to be able to increase the speed. You know, we're going to run into limits. And also, computers are becoming more and more efficient, but even so, they're using more and more power. You are having this crazy paradox where you're getting smaller and smaller computers getting hotter and hotter. And again, there's going to be limits. How fast can you cool it? How much energy can you supply to this thing? Moore's law refers to advances in computer chip development. In simple terms, it creates the expectation that over time, computers get smaller and more powerful. As Dave suggests, newer models may be slightly hotter because more power in a smaller space means more heat. But even with the extra power it takes to cool them, they are more energy efficient. However, this is not the only thing that needs to be taken into account. The real problem is embodied impact, which is the environmental footprint of making the new stuff 
in the first place. Something the Restart Project taught me. Something like 80% of the energy use of a mobile phone is in its manufacture, not in its use. It's actually manufacturing the thing that takes all the energy. And it's similar with most computers. It actually takes more energy to manufacture it than you ever use in actually doing all your computation. Because these things tend to get thrown away within three years maximum. What's also evident now, which people are starting to become more aware of is the total life cycle impact of a data center. So there's a real trend in servers, for example, and and computing generally. Because of Moore's law, you get more performance on a chip. So if you buy a new server, it will be more efficient. You'll get more performance for less energy. But then what do you do? Do you throw away your old server to replace it with something which uses less energy while it's operating? It's about understanding the trade-off, that there's a lot of embodied environmental impacts in the equipment, particularly electronics. The manufacturing of printed circuit boards is very energy intense. You're using materials which have to be mined. There's, there's all of these kind of issues. And at the moment, we don't have very good visibility of what they are, or, or we're just starting to see some research in this area. So I'm working on some projects where we're trying to weigh up this total environmental impact. So to understand, well, at what point is it worth replacing equipment? Do I have a lot of impact embodied or do I have a lot on the operational side? What impact does using renewable energy have on those two things? It varies quite a lot. So there's quite a lot of work to do in, in making people more aware about the wider environmental impact, not just for energy in use. There's a new, newish initiative, the Open Compute Project, where some of the, the big data centre operators are looking to open source hardware development, as well as a lot of other aspects of a data centre. So rather than just buying what's available, they're trying to reduce costs primarily, but they're also able to dematerialize the boxes. They're making a lot of innovations there, which is causing some product design rethinks, which is which is quite interesting. Dematerialize the boxes. What what does that mean? Okay, so I guess a, a server is a it's a box. It's got a case. Imagine kind of part of your hi-fi stack. It kind of looks something like that. But then if you think, well, do I really need all of these components? How can I reduce what's there? So I, I've seen some facilities where they've got these kind of open compute devices, and they have no case. It's just an open tray, and you can see all of the components inside. It's an extra cost. It's an extra thing to manufacture. It's an extra barrier if you're doing maintenance. It's just trying to rethink what do you really need. Another thing that Sophia taught me is that the internet is not just machines. It's also people. Sophia is one of those people. There are a whole range of trained professionals who deal with the hardware and software that keeps our data centres running. Part of building a greener internet is communicating these issues to the people who run the machines. The people who are writing the software, the people who develop the apps, they're often not very aware of it because they're working in quite an abstract way. There's quite a divide between the people who do the software, the people who physically deploy the hardware, the people like me who are the power and cooling engineers who don't really get involved in the IT, but they provide the services to support it. It's quite a complex map. I'm constantly reading articles about how AI is going to solve all of our problems and you know things are going to be machine-led. Maybe that's a trend. I, I mean, it's very difficult to predict the future. It's very fast moving. Certainly what we see is there is a human-machine interface at some level on some sites so maybe the machine is learning but someone would have had to have set that up someone would have had to have conceived it and and set things into motion what we see is there might be some facilities which are designed to be energy efficient but that design knowledge hasn't been transferred through the installation and operation to the team who are actually in charge of it so a lot of our focus is on raising awareness and doing training for those operational teams so that they can understand better what's the design intent, maybe challenge the design intent because often the facilities are not operating at full load. So to understand what can they do to optimise that facility as it is and it's through doing that through training because you can get in an expert to do an audit, write a report 
and then leave you with some things to do. It's a different thing when you inform all the site team on what's best practice out there, what are the opportunities, and give them ownership of those improvements. So that's really where we're trying to focus. And, and again, break down these barriers between, well, this is an IT person, you know, they don't really understand the cooling system. This guy changes the filters in the cooling units. It's trying to get everyone to work together collaboratively. As I mentioned, reliability is a really important issue. So when people started caring about energy efficiency, it can't be at the price of reliability. No one's going to thank you if you put in something which uses less energy, but then it's not reliable. From an operational point of view, we really try and design things to be as simple as possible. Design engineers are often kind of in their office and they're doing things in theory. What's really important is to have the feedback from the operators so you don't design something which is complex on paper and which works on paper, but which in reality you have a lot of operational issues with. So when we can reduce our cooling needs, there's some real opportunities to try and make things simple as well. So they are inherently reliable. Reliability seems to be the most crucial thing. Data centres are unlikely to put measures into place to become more green if that will jeopardise their reliability. As I was suggesting at the start of this episode, it's really difficult to imagine a world where internet services come to a grinding halt. But that's something that should in itself be ringing some alarm bells. Something that I often wonder about is have we become too reliant on this brilliant and exciting tool that we've called the internet. how much information can one person absorb it's crazy i do it myself i realized it the other day you know i came home what did i do i looked at the news on my phone straight away even though there was nothing interesting i could have gleaned from it that i couldn't have gleaned 10 minutes later but i feel this compulsion to be connected yeah you know? yeah and i think we all do but i think there's also a massive join being disconnected and i think what's going to happen i hope in the next few years is people are going to realize the joy of being disconnected you know, that's going to become a thing of value in itself. And hopefully as that happens, people are going to say, OK, you know, I can get joy from being connected and I can get that joy from spending maybe larger and larger amounts of time disconnected. And at that point, we're going to eventually, maybe there's going to be a, ba- I hope there's going to be a backlash. I hope that people are going to say, well, let's live part of our lives without computers in our faces. You know, let's live some of our life actually talking to each other and enjoying the silence, nice things like that that we don't do anymore. Yeah, I mean, I do think, so. I do think that's already starting. I, I know people who are doing that sort of thing already, like people taking kind of internet holidays and stuff like that, yeah. you know. Addressing the ever-growing environmental footprint of the internet requires us and the companies who serve us to think carefully about how we use the internet. Not just what services we use and how we use those services, but also what equipment we use and how long we use it for. The internet is not a weightless cloud. It is made of talented people, complex infrastructure, replaceable equipment, and of course, ourselves. We are part of what makes the internet happen 
And so we have to take some responsibility for what happens to our world because we use the internet. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at 1.30 on Tuesdays on Resonance 104.4 FM, repeated on Thursdays at 11.30 AM. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And thanks to SoundCloud users Nowser and Gareth McNichol, who provided the data center sound. And big thanks to our intern, Lauren, who is a big step herself in helping to make the Restart Project podcast a much more sustainable process. Today's restart party is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.